0: Hello, everyone. This is James Bashara, son of Tony and Christine Bashara. I recently moved from San Francisco to Los Angeles, and in the move came across this copy of a self-bound book called The Basheras of Haskell. I'm looking at it right now, and I ended up putting it on my desk right next to my podcasting equipment. That made me think, you know what? I could contribute something here by doing an audio version of the book. So here we are. Here is chapter one of the Basharas of Haskell. I'm going to read every word that was written here. It is compiled from countless conversations, the entire Bashera family, and it is written by it was written by Wadia and Anthony Bashera. Anthony, my dad, Wadia, our grandfather, and it is. I got about three pages in and realized I need to record this for, uh, for safekeeping. So without further ado, let's jump into the Becheras of Haskell. And I'm going to read this very uh, naturally. I'll probably flub some words here and there. I might add in some, some side notes of things. But, uh, but yeah, I'm going to keep it pretty casual. And I think the story itself should keep you pretty entertained. The Besherahs of Haskell by the Bashera family, written by Wadia and Anthony Bashera. Copyright 1987, Anthony Bashera, the Bashera Press Limited, Haskell, Oklahoma. That was one year after I was born. If there is any good here, that in my dad would have been 40, so I'm 34, and, and maybe he felt something similar to I do a. Uh, Right now at 34, of a renewed appreciation for family, our history, and our heritage. If there is, and this is right on the first page, if there is any good here that anyone wants to duplicate, they are welcome to do so as long as they appreciate all the love that is represented in this story. Dedication. The efforts of this document are dedicated to all of the members of the Besher family. A note of thanks goes to the contributors, especially Wadia Bashera, who wrote the majority of its contents. A special note of thanks should go to Christine, Anthony's wife, who lovingly understood the time it has taken to compile and write. I think all of our wives, uh, all of our spouses, deserve the thanks for any creative pursuit that we go after, for sure. Above all, we must acknowledge the strength and fortitude of especially Anton Bashera and his wife, Olga, and all of the immigrants like them. There can't help but be a feeling of loving pride in what they did. This story is but a small tribute to all that they have given us. May each of our descendants appreciate their lives and may they too pass along that love and strength through God's goodness. I think what hit me hardest about even just reading that dedication about three or four days ago is we're finding ourselves here in Los Angeles right on the West Coast, right across the street from the beach. And Anton, our great-grandfather, moved here. He was 16 years old. I think I have that age right, but we're about to find out in the book. 16 years old from Lebanon and made his way through the East Coast down to Oklahoma, and our family then dispersed further, and now I am in California. It has been a multi-generational trek to get here, and it's not lost on me, especially when I opened up this book right after moving down here. Chapter one, the beginnings. Papa Tony's father, that's what Anton is referred to in the book, was Beshara Assad Eben Wakid Fagali. Tony was born and raised in Wadi Shohur, literally meaning the Valley of of the Nightingale, which is a village in the mountains about eight miles outside of Beirut. Bashara or Bashara, is a common first name in the Middle East, meaning good news. Asad was a personal, specific name given to Tony's father. Wakit was the portion of the name that traditionally told where the person was from, and Fagali was the tribal name. Eben was a prefix meaning son of. The prefix abi can appear in the name of the place of Eben. Abi means father of. Anton Eben Bashara Fagali translates into Anton, whose father is Bashara, is a son of the Wakid family of the Fagali tribe. That is a mouthful in the rest of this uh, book, will be a mouthful, so apologies for flubbing any of it. I don't know when our family went to Bashara over Bashara, um, but as you'll see with how Anton even got the name Bashara, it was uh, kind of a compromise a mutually agreed-upon compromise of tradition and a modern pronunciation. We're not sure when Bashar Assad married Helena Rahana, but we do know the Bashar, the family, the Bashar family, owned an olive grove, a fruit garden, and an olive press. According to Tom Bashar, the family also owned a bakery at one time. He remembered Helena Helena, because she was tall and used to carry buckets of water about one mile from a well to the bakery. Tom remembers how strong she was, and since Bashar Assad was a less than average sized man, it made Helena's height all the more pronounced. Bashar Assad was one of ten children. It is known that one of his brothers became a priest and one of his sisters was named Emma. Bashar Assad, Bashar Assad, learned to read and write from a local priest. His wife, Helena, however, could not. Since he was a learned man, he became a mektar in his community, which was like a commissioner or local judge. Even though they owned land and Bashar was a local leader, the family was apparently not that well off. Anton related that the family would raise vegetables on their land to sell at market during the growing months. Anton also told that during the winter he would haul manure to the market to sell. Bashar Assad was 84 years old when he died in 1934. However, Helena lived to be 107. In fact, there were nine children in Helena's family, seven girls and two boys. All but three of them lived to be over 100 years old. Bashar Assad and Helena had four boys, Joseph, born, we don't know, Anton, born August 10th, 1880, Shikri, born February 1st, 1884, and Mansud, whose birth date is unknown as well. Monsoud only lived to be 10 years old. Wow, that is a very different time 100 years ago than families today, from the 10 kids to not knowing birth dates, and uh, as well as uh, siblings dying young. Lebanon is an independent nation in Asia at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. It is slightly smaller than the state of Connecticut. It has two mountain ranges and has always been known for its beauty. Its location has made it a center of trade and transportation for 4,000 years. Its lands have seen the footsteps of Jesus, the ruins of, and I flip to the next page and there's a picture of Bashar Assad Eben wakid Fagali, who is wearing um, he's wearing a hat, a suit, some really big baggy pants. That uh, doesn't say when this photo was taken, but he looks—he looks of the strong, silent type from this photo. He's not smiling, and but is well dressed, and has uh, some really uh, nice ornamental furniture around him. And his pants are huge. It's kind of like MC Hammer's pants, but with a magician's jacket on and. One of those hats that has no brim whatsoever it looks like a thimble, uh, but fits over the head. Next up, we have Helena Rahana, who is smiling, and I'm just giving you verbatim what's in the what's in the book, what I'm seeing page by page. So I'll get back to the story in a second. But her photo, she is smiling. She's sitting down in what looks to be a nice chair, uh, and and image behind her um, that may be just a backdrop for a photographer and flowers. And she's wearing all black, um, button-down coat, and and long black dress, and uh, some type of handkerchief on her hair, and a nice smile. She looks she looks sweet. So back to the story. It Says, is seen Lebanon has seen the footsteps of Jesus, the ruins of." the Phoenician ports, Roman temples, even castles built by the crusaders. Lebanon is considered an Arab country, and Arabic is the official language, although many of the people speak French and English. It has always been considered a Christian country, although only about half of the population is Christian and the rest are Muslim. Most of the Christians belong to the Maronite Church, part of the Roman Catholic Church. The rest are Greek Orthodox, Greek Catholic, Armenian, and some Protestants. French Jesuit priests, began schools in the early 1800s and were mostly responsible for what literacy there was at that time in the 1800s. In the early thousands, that's thousands, Lebanese Christians welcomed the Crusaders from Europe. They provided the Crusaders with guides, messengers, and soldiers, developed the traditional friendship between the Maronite Christians in Lebanon and the French. The Ottoman Turks conquered Lebanon in 1516 and made it a part of their empire. This lasted until Turkey's defeat in World War I. Wow. So this was part of Turkey until the defeat of World War I. From the Hills of Lebanon. The passage below is excerpted from a lengthy article entitled From the Hills of Lebanon, written by Tom Caldwell, who wrote a master's thesis on the Lebanese immigration to Oklahoma. It was published in the Chronicles of Oklahoma and gives an insight into the rather specific saga of Lebanese immigration to Oklahoma. Notice how it parallels Papatoni's experience. Below that, there's a map showing how Lebanon was a part of Syria at the time of Papatoni coming to the United States. Ethnic groups in Oklahoma, from Vietnamese to Russians, have been the subjects of several books and articles. One exception to this trend, however, has been the Syrian Lebanese people of the state. These citizens have made these citizens have made definite contributions to Oklahoma, and their shared experience provides a colorful portrait of immigration acculturation in a challenging new land. The hyphenated term, Syrian-Lebanese, is frequently used in reference to the majority of people who immigrated to the United States from the eastern Mediterranean area prior to the imposition of the entry restrictions in the mid-1920s. About 90% of these people were Christians from the Mount Lebanon district of the pre-World War I Syria. Since the formation of the Republic of Lebanon in 1941, they have been known as Lebanese, but prior to that time, they were generally called Syrians. In their homeland at that time, there was little political unity and no common name to all of them. Instead, they usually identified themselves by their home village and their religious affiliation. A little sip of coffee. The geographical location of Lebanon has been a factor in the shaping of these people. Situated as it is at the juncture of Africa, Asia, and Europe, this land has long served as a corridor for trade and warfare between continents. The Lebanese people have been described as the remnants of the Phoenician, Phoenician Canaanite tribes who entered the area some 2,500 BC, 4,500 years ago, then mixed with the Aramean Israelite hordes who arrived a thousand years later. This racial mixture was altered again by Arabs from the desert and the sundry warfaring people who have invaded the land at various times. While these people were a mixture of varying bloodlines, culturally and linguistically, they were Arabic. The Lebanon area was and still is greatly fragmented in terms of religious faiths. faiths. The result of a rough mountainous region that made it a place of refuge for persecuted religious groups. There are some 17 sects represented there, almost equally divided between the Christian and the Muslim faiths. The principal Christian sects are Eastern or Syrian Orthodox, the Melkites, Roman Catholics of the Byzantine Rite, reunited with Rome in 1724, and the Maronites, founded by St. Maron about 400 AD, and claiming never to have been in the schism with Rome. The Muslims also are split into three major groups, Shias, Shiites, Sunnis, and Druze, a Muslim heterodoxy which is viewed with some apprehension by all other Muslim sects. It is really interesting that national borders are more of a modern creation in the last few centuries, and for the last 4,500 years, community was much smaller and identity was driven by villages and religion and how many different sects there were. This is really um, an interesting dive into well, how recent it was for humanity to essentially still live in tribes. The cultural pattern of these people was based on loyalty to the extended family, the village, and the religious sect. A small village would usually be one of, one religion and nearly all families would share kinship ties. Within the family, the father would be the absolute authority. The wife had a subordinate role, caring for the house, preparing meals, clothing the family, and frequently toiling beside her husband in the fields. These people loved their land. They enjoyed music and good food, and they delighted in visiting with family and friends. Even at the beginning of the 20th century, most had very little material wealth except for the kerosene lamps, they lived much as their ancestors had at the time of Christ. The evidence is plain that virtually every man who left this area in the 50 years prior to World War I did so with the hope of improving his standard of living. Most of them intended to work for only a few years and save enough money to return to their homeland and live off the income from their savings. It's an interesting note that people would intend to only work for a few years and then return i remember feeling like san francisco moving there from texas was was going to be quite daunting even after living around the world uh in a few different places i thought i was I i was really intimidated by it and so i said okay we'll go for three months and see what it's like and i was building a company that that required investors Uh, or investors that wanted to invest. And it required us to move there for at least three months and said, okay, let me try it out for three months and then I'll return with all this wisdom gained. And then I was there almost 10 years. The evidence is plain that virtually every man who left this area in the 50 years prior to World War I did so with the hope of improving his standard of living. Largely, they were young single men from agricultural backgrounds. For the most part, They were endowed with very little in way of education or finances. Actually, very few of them ever returned to their homeland to stay. Some returned to marry local girls or just to visit their families. More often, they would send passage money for brothers, sisters, and parents to join them in their new home. These newly arrived Lebanese immigrants were faced with the immediate necessity of finding a place to live and a means of livelihood. Since the vast majority of them entered through the port of New York, it was only natural that a community developed there. The newer immigrants would receive guidance and assistance from the earlier settlers and this milieu evolved one of the, and in this milieu evolved one of the most distinctive economic patterns seen among any immigrant groups the peddling system. Pack peddling was for many years the particular province of the Syrian Lebanese immigrants. While peddling was not a common occupation in their homeland a great number of these people worked successfully at this Itinerant trade in the, United, in the United States. There can be no doubt that the peddling system was good to and for these people. It produced good profits with very little capital investment and required almost no training. It was an excellent means for learning the language, the values, the customs of the American people. There was virtually no stigma associated with this business. It provided a needed and usually most welcome service for isolated people in an environment which was far less mobile than today's society. Pedaling would be, pack pedaling would be, I imagine, just you have a bag, a pack of, of things and you'd go door-to-door pedaling, knives, housewares, um, shoe polishes. I'm sure it's uh, covered the gamut of different types of goods. The business of pedaling, and it's interesting that that was uh, distinctly Syrian-Lebanese um, type of business The business of peddling served to disperse the Syrian Lebanese throughout the entire country and discourage the growth of large ethnic enclaves. While it it hastened the acculturation of these people, in the process, it contributed to its own obsolescence. The Lebanese peddler quickly acquired a working knowledge of the language, accumulated a considerable amount of money, and learned a great deal about the American way of life. One thing they learned was the desirability of settling into a permanent home. As quickly as they could amass sufficient capital, Syrian Lebanese peddlers usually establish businesses, most frequently a small grocery or dry goods store, not infrequently they would choose a likely location discovered on their peddling routes, often setting up shop with the remaining goods. There is no known record of the very first Syrian Lebanese settler in what is now Oklahoma, but it is quite probable that he came here in just such a manner. It is certain that the initial phase of this immigration took place during the 1890s. The census abstract for 1890 lists none, but more than 100 persons born in Syria were were listed in the census schedules of 1900, 10 years later. It is interesting that of the 61 employed, 10 were listed as peddlers. Can't believe we had census systems back there to record this, to know that of 100 settlers, um, the Syrian Lebanese settlers in Oklahoma, 61 were employed and 10 were listed as peddlers. There were two groups of Syrian Lebanese families who settled on farms in Oklahoma during the late 1890s and early 1900s. One of these groups was located principally in Galena Township of Woods County. Nearly a dozen families settled on farms in that area, where being quite close together, they applied for and received a post office in 1898. George Shadi was appointed first postmaster and he named the post office Syria after his native land. The post office was discontinued in 1907, and most of the families left the farms. I wonder if by naming it Syria, it once you leave your country, there is some, and I'll quit with these little sides, but it's just interesting and going through my mind that on one hand, they identify more with their village and their religion. Uh, but then on another hand, when coming to a new country, they, this guy, George Shaidi, named the post office Syria after the native land. And I wonder if that is, as you leave, you stretch out your identity as an effort to be a honeypot for as many people similarly to, you know, similar to you as possible versus a really specific tiny version of that. I find myself doing that as I've lived around the US or, or when I was living in Cape Town, I would just say I'm from Texas and stretched out my identity from not being from Dallas, but from Texas, um, went abroad so that it could kind of gather up any other Texans or any other Texas experiences that people had. The pattern of the Syrian Lebanese who were attracted to Oklahoma by the availability of inexpensive land seems to differ in one notable respect from those who came as peddlers. And that difference is that many of the farmers came to the state as family groups, For most of them, it seems to have been a secondary migration, some of them having tried farming in other states and some having worked at other trades elsewhere. Most of these early Syrian Lebanese farmers were gone from the land within a few years. Many of them gravitated into the towns and into retail businesses, although they frequently retained ownership of the land. In a few cases, their heirs still farm the land today. Some of the earliest Syrian Lebanese settlers in what is now Oklahoma were undoubtedly drawn here by the great amounts of activity in the coal mines of the Choctaw Nation. The earliest documented births among this group are recorded in the census records of 1900. When business conditions warranted, these early Syrian Lebanese settlers would pass the word to their kinsmen and friends, both in the eastern United States and in the old country, that Indian territory had great promise. Often, the established merchants would be able to send funds to finance the trip, and when these newcomers arrived, they would usually receive a helping hand from the earlier settlers. It was not so much financial as it was a more practical kind of help. This help might be a little more than a place to eat and sleep until they could become established. It might consist of advice as to what business business to try and what pitfalls to avoid. The aid often, often consisted of a job as a clerk in the established store while the newcomer Newcomer was learning enough English and business procedure to enable him to strike out on his own. Doesn't mention this here, but I know Oklahoma was not a state at this point. It still was uh, Indian territory. Very often, the older merchant would set the newer one up in a business venture as a partnership. This pattern of immigration tended to develop groups of Syrian Lebanese people in the areas near where the first settlers had located. Census records bear this out in the fact that through the 1940, through 1940, two-thirds or more of the Syrian Lebanese in Oklahoma were living in only 10 counties. Too often, most of those within a county were all in one city. And since the majority were selling groceries or dry goods, they were in an unhealthy economic situation, too much competition with each other. It is not surprising, therefore, that when wild cutters began to make oil strikes around the state and oil boom towns burst onto the landscape, it was viewed as a welcome opportunity by the Syrian Lebanese. Frequently, when an oil pool was discovered, it would be in an isolated area or near some small agriculturally oriented town. There would never be enough goods or supplies to satisfy the needs of all newcomers, a circumstance made to order for Syrian Lebanese merchants. They responded quickly by moving their merchandise into the boomtowns Towns and setting up shop. These new businesses were frequently partnerships. Often the partners, who are nearly always related by blood or marriage, would be operating stores in different towns. Sometimes one of the partners in an established business would maintain that store while the other partner took a portion of the stock and set up a store in the boomtown. Town. In those, ta- in those times, it did not require a great deal of capital to begin a business. In fact, Wadia relates that Papa Tony could start a complete store for $350. All that was needed was a stock of merchandise and a place to sell it. Store buildings were often little more than large wooden boxes with a window or two in front. A few dollars worth of lumber, with a little effort, would produce fixtures for the store. A hand-painted sign and a cigar box for the cash would get those merchants into business quickly. frequently those fledgling entrepreneurs were single men possibly peddlers only a short time before mostly they lived in back rooms of stores simply and frugally in the bustling boom towns many of them did a thriving many of them did a thriving business in groceries or dry goods their spartan living style enabled them to build an inventory of merchandise as the towns matured so did the Syrian Lebanese merchants their command of the English language grew and their merchandising ability com- expanded as they learned the tricks of the trade. As their businesses prospered and the towns grew somewhat more tranquil, these merchants would send for their families. If they were unmarried, as was frequently the situation, they would begin to search for brides. Through relatives or friends, they would locate single Syrian Lebanese girls, either in their Lebanese village or among the daughters, sisters. Or nieces of earlier immigrants in America. Some would even build and construct dolls of hay that would act as wives for incoming immigrants so that they would appear to have a stable family. Okay, that was a joke. Add it in just to make sure you're listening. This pattern of matrimonial arrangements generally produced families in which the husband (sighs) poor form to laugh at. One's own joke, but this pattern of matrimonial arrangements generally produced families in which the husband was considerably older than his wife. This was largely because it usually took a number of years to get a business well established, and two, it was traditional Arabic custom to marry daughters off while they were relatively young. This diversity in age did not appear to produce any adverse effects on the stability of the marriages or on the apparent happiness of both parties. When these businessmen had made a marriage, they settled down to build a home here in their new village in America. They attended church, sent their children to school, and joined the Chamber of Commerce, a club or fraternal order. In short, they experienced the metamorphosis from immigrants to Americans through this matrimonial arrangement. It would be a mistake to assume that all Syrian Lebanese businessmen invariably experienced this successful progression. There are many possible pitfalls in the road to success, not the least of which was one over which they had no control, the failure of the boomtown. Sooner or later, most of the nearby mineral deposits were depleted, and the town would shrink almost as quickly as it had burgeoned. As the workers left the area, many businesses failed, but usually the Syrian Lebanese had either moved their store or sold it before the situation grew desperate. On occasion, the business would be so well-established that they could stay there and make a living on what trade remained in the area. Many of these merchants moved several times before they became firmly established in a viable location, but eventually, most of them succeeded in doing so. Sometimes, Syrian Lebanese merchants failed for personal or business reasons, in which case they would try another line of business or another town. It was very rare that a Syrian Lebanese Oklahoman gave up and returned to his homeland and the old way of life. This pattern of seeking a more likely location when business was poor tended to spread the Syrian Lebanese people into other areas which seemed booming. The discovery of new oil pools at various sites was a prime factor in this diffusion into other parts of Oklahoma. A good example of this spreading out was Seminole County, which had no Syrian Lebanese people until the oil boom there in the 1920s. By 1930, when the census was taken, 5% of Oklahoma's Syrian Lebanese were living in the Seminole County. As these people moved around within the state, there was a na- natural and logical tendency for them to head towards the larger, growing towns and cities. Census figures show that they have increasingly tended to settle into, states, into the state's two largest cities. The reasons for this concentration are easily explained. It is probably an It is probably no accident that few, if any, Syrian Lebanese settled in counties that were primarily agricultural areas, with only small business centers, and virtually no industrial improvement. Education had traditionally been of great concern to the Syrian Lebanese in their homeland, and those who came to Oklahoma were certainly anxious to have their children take advantage of all the education which was available. Many of them never had the opportunity for formal education, so they cherished it for their youngsters their ambitions for their children were high and there were a number of professional people who emerged from that generation however in the early years as they struggled to make the family business a profitable venture it was not unusual for the eldest son to drop out of school and go to work to help keep the younger children in school during the adversity of the great depression many of these youngsters were unable to attend college and were frequently employed in the family store but even in those in those dismal days It was unusual for one of the Syrian Lebanese children to fail, to fail to graduate from high school. Later, in the flush of post-war prosperity, a large part of the third generation was college was college trained. Among this almost completely assimilated generation, there are a great many doctors, lawyers, engineers, and business executives. I promise I will get the hang of reading out loud into a microphone. And smooth this out as the chapters progress. In their early days in Oklahoma, religion was of prime concern to the Syrian Lebanese immigrants, and they easily adapted to the available American churches. For the Maronites, the Roman Catholic Church was so conveniently similar to their own right that they easily accepted it. The Orthodox Christians, however, had no ready-made substitute for their religious needs, so their response was a prompt adaptation to one or another Protestant denominations. It is somewhat indicative of the nature of the Syrian Lebanese people's loyalty toward their religious sect that, although they were active members of the Protestant church which they joined, they still regarded themselves as a part of the denomination of their birth. There was a considerable carryover of this attitude into the second generation. Pausing for a sip of coffee. Oh, that's good. A fascinating aspect of the Syrian Lebanese immigrants is the matter of their names. Translating Arabic into English is not a simple matter, and the immigration official at the port of entry faced it every day. Rarely was the immigrant able to write his name in English. So for the most part, their names were entered into the records just as some official understood it and felt that it should be spelled. This has resulted in a wide variation of spelling of several several family names. The Naifa family has been spelled Naifi, Naifa, Naifa, Nafa, and Nafe. There are Corys, 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 El Corys, in Oklahoma City, and Corys, Corys, and Corys, elsewhere in the country. And it appears in official records, also spelled Kuri, Cory, Kari, and Kowry. Immigration officials often anglicized Arabic names. So that Shibli became Shibli, Heraz became Harris, Baradet became Barket, and Debachi became Debaki. Frequently, too, Syrian Lebanese immigrants would change their names to reduce real or imagined differences with their neighbors by eliminating their foreign sounding names. The result was a number of families of Arabic origin with names such as Adams, Francis, Albert, Taylor, Brown, and Jones. Given names, too, were often changed to make relations a bit simpler with their customers. Such names as Joseph, Peter, John, Samuel, Jacob, Abraham, and Michael are anglicized from biblical names. There are, however, a great many names such as Fanny, Sadie, Lissy, Minnie, Charlie, and Oscar, which were apparently adopted merely for convenience. There was a noticeable trend for the Syrian Lebanese men to begin naturalization proceedings early in this new life, since schedules show that the great majority of men were either naturalized or had begun the process, process by taking out their first papers. There appears to have been an indifference on the part of the women in this regard, or it may have been that the men did not feel the naturalization was important for the women and did not encourage them to pursue citizenship status. It could be that Syrian Lebanese merchants perceived citizenship as an asset in their business, but those who were farming in Oklahoma were just as quick to seek citizenship. It may be assumed from this that these men were truly desirous of becoming a permanent part of America. The patriotism that they have displayed through two world wars would certainly hear this out. For the most part, the Syrian Lebanese who came to Oklahoma followed the same general pattern that their fellow countrymen displayed nationally. There was a large majority who entered into some type of commercial venture, predominantly retail grocery and or dry goods stores. A few followed trades learned in their native land, shoe repair, carpentry, masonry, barbering, and other services. Few of those early immigrants worked for wages for a longer time than was required to save enough money to allow them to go and do business for themselves. Very few ultimately gave up and returned to their homeland. The ones that stayed were friendly, courteous, enthusiastic, cheerful, ambitious, honest, and hardworking. Next up, we got another photo of Anton Bechera. He is now not wearing a hat, a little bit older, has a mustache, longer hair, and he's wearing a suit instead of the traditional garb that he had a few pages ago. So this naturalization is starting to take shape for Anton Boucher in these photos. The chapter ends with this poem. And next chapter, if you will join me on this journey, will be Anton to America. But this first chapter ends with this poem and this I guess section from Khalil Gibran's *The Prophet*, and I said it was a poem, but now that I'm reading it, it is not a poem. It's just a section from *The Prophet* from Khalil Gibran. But as he descended the hill, a sadness came upon him, and he thought in his heart, "How shall I go into peace and without sorrow? Nay, not without a wound in the spirit." shall I leave this country? Long were the days of pain I have spent within its boundaries, and long were the nights of aloneness. And who can depart from his pain and his aloneness without regret? Yet I cannot tarry longer. The sea that calls all things unto her calls me, and I must embark. Fain would I take with me all that is here, but how shall I? A voice cannot carry the tongue and the lips that give it wings. Alone must it seek the, eth- the ether. And alone and without his nest shall the eagle fly across the sun. Khalil Gibran. That is chapter one. Thank you for joining me for this first introductory chapter. Cannot wait to get into Anton to America next. On the Besharas of Haskell. Until next time, this is James Bashara slash Bashara slash who knows what it's going to be a hundred years from now.